0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. This message is from our Renovate series, where we take a look at relationships through a biblical perspective and was recorded at our Menifee campus. Um, We're going to be kind of topical this morning, so um, we'll kind of be jumping around, uh, but it would be good for you to have a Bible. So this morning, fair warning, we're in our last message of the Renovate series. We're going to talk about sex this time, and it's kind of like seventh grade science class. Like, you you put it at the end, you're not sure if you'll actually cover it or not, because you're not sure if you'll have time. So we are, if you have children in here, I don't see any, but if you had any that you just weren't ready to have a discussion with. You have about two minutes, <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. Um, it's really important that we talk about this subject. It's a, it's a huge issue in our culture around the world. And the first thing really to say about sex from the Bible is that God is very pro-sex. And I think a lot of times we don't think of God that way, but he is for it. He invented it. He designed it. It was his idea. We look at Genesis 2, and we look at um, the very beginning here in Genesis 2, 24, um, when the, the man and the woman are made, and they're given in marriage. It says in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And a lot of times we think that you know, somehow maybe that was just their idea or something. You know That God maybe left them for an hour and came back and was like, Whoa, what are you guys doing? Like, I leave you alone for an hour in this, you know? But that's not the case, guys. Ponder this. God himself invented sex. Is that a weird thought to you? God himself invented it. He invented the bodies for it. He invented the hormones. He invented the brain chemistry. He invented the actions of sex. It was all his idea. Now, maybe if you ponder that, that's a little bit mind-blowing, you know? That your vision of God is maybe that somehow he's hiding his eyes, you know, and things like that. But God himself speaks very highly of sex in marriage throughout Scripture. You think specifically of the Song of Solomon? Um, listen to this from the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon 7-7. Some of these guys, you guys might want to highlight this one. It says, it, this is a husband speaking to his wife. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Now, those of you guys that, that love classic rock will recognize a Steve Miller Band uh, lyric there from the song The Joker. You can check it out yourself. But they stole that from the Song of Solomon. This, the, the Bible, guys, is not the holy book of a God that's repressive about sex at all. And, um, you know, I was going to say in the beginning, I'm not going to say anything graphic about sex except what the Bible says, but the Bible is fairly graphic, you know, um, and so, uh, and there, were, there have been, guys, people throughout church history that have been very repressive on the issue of sex. Religions in general have a strong distrust for sexual pleasure. You think about cultures around the world that do all kinds of things to limit sexual pleasure. Um, in the 171800s, there was a group called the Shakers. And, um, and the Shakers were interesting because the Shakers taught that no sex in marriage was allowed at all, even for procreation. So that was self-limiting. Okay. That, that religion did not last for two reasons. Um, they failed to have children and nobody really wanted to join that. Okay. And so the shakers were around for maybe a hundred years or something, but just gradually faded away. If you look them up on Wikipedia, they're very interesting people, a lot of weird doctrine. That's one of them. And they also did this kind of weird dancing rituals, like this kind of sexually repressed line dancing. Uh, you should take a look at it. It's really interesting. Um, Other church traditions have taught that sex in marriage is only fine if there's a reasonable likelihood of conception. Some of you guys have seen that. I mean, there's still some uh, branches of Christianity that teach that. Guys, it is horrible damage to marriages um, to teach that. The Proverbs, though, guys, speak of sex in marriage not for just conception, but for enjoyment. Another passage that married people you might wanna highlight is Proverbs 5.18. Listen to this. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth a lovely deer and a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? It's interesting, the advice in Proverbs is not just, hey, don't be intoxicated by the breasts of an adulteress, but be intoxicated by the breasts of your wife, okay? Once again, not a book from a God who has any issues with sex and marriage, in fact, in the New Testament, you, know, you see not only sex for enjoyment in marriage being allowed, but also even commanded. Another passage you might want to highlight, 1 Corinthians 7.2 says, But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his, his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband, and then this part's shocking in first century. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's a lot of important things there. There's God fully affirming sex and marriage and also saying that it's a type of spiritual warfare. You know, it's a, it's a way to actually protect your marriage. And, um, and so this book, guys, is very much pro-sex, God's very much pro-sex within the covenant of marriage. But we as a people are very good at taking good gifts of God and jacking them up, aren't we? And this is one area that we have done that. We have taken a good gift that God gives and caused all kinds of misery from it. And we saw some of that just a little bit here when we we're hearing about Holly and what she's um, working against there. Um, but we can all say that about our own lives, you know, and people that we know closely. We've, we've seen that there's a designer, God, he's designed something called sex and then we've decided to just kind of ignore his instructions about how to operate it, right? And do what we want with what he's created. And I was thinking about this way, it's starting to get warm, right? might start to get warm in here. Um, It's starting to get warm this summer, right? And say your AC goes out and you go, you know what? I'm gonna put a fan in the window. Maybe that'll help. And the fan blows a little bit. You're not real satisfied with the fan. It's not blowing that much air. And then you go, wait a minute. My lawnmower kind of has a fan. And you think, I'll put that in the window, okay? Now there are instructions that came with that that say that's not the way to use that. But you put that in the window and what happens? It makes you miserable, okay? It adds some air, but it also adds fumes, noise. Your children are missing fingers because of it, right? That's what it's like when we take God's good design of sex and we use it any way we want to, is we make ourselves miserable, something that should be joy. And so when God gives commands about sexuality, he's not trying to keep happiness from us. Remember, he designed it. He's trying to protect our joy. He wants to see Us be um, happy in our lives, and also he wants to see sex actually lead to human flourishing. Sex was actually meant to build human flourishing. Think about how powerful it is. Sex is so powerful, it can be used to create strong, stable families, thriving marriages, or it can be used just as easily to rip them to shreds. We guys have all seen that, right? We've all seen the power of it. And so God wants to protect your joy, and He wants to protect your family. And I love this quote by uh, Chesterton. Um, He says, whenever we remove any fence, let's pause long enough to ask ourselves, why was this fence put here in the first place? You know, if we think about God's commands as, as fences to protect a good thing, not to keep us away from something that's good for us, but a fence to go around something that's good to protect it from things on the outside, Chesterton's saying, before you just pick up that fence, you might want to think about why it was put there in the first place. And so this morning, we're going to look at three fences he's placed to protect sex. And um, and the three things, this is going to be heavy, okay? I Admit it. Um, adultery, pornography, and premarital sex. We're going to go through those three. Uh, we're going to talk about these fences God's put in place. And then at the end, we're going to see what it was sex for, how does it relate to the gospel. Let's start with adultery. Exodus 20, 14 says, Uh, You shall not commit adultery. Thankfully, our culture gets this for the most part. They don't do it, but they at least get that it's wrong. Um, But, guys, it is rampant. I mean, we could go around and we could share stories of uh, friends and family and people in Christian churches, um, pastors in our area that have fallen even recently. This is rampant. Um, This is something that I I just want to plead with you guys do not assume you are immune. I think that's what most people do is they assume that they're immune to this. So, are like, oh, no, no, that's on the tank of I'm immune to that one. Like, I would never do that. Don't be assume you're immune. It often starts with a friendship. You guys can probably think of stories like this. Starts with a friendship at work. Starts with a friendship at the gym. A lot of times starts with things online. You may reconnect with somebody on Facebook that you knew from a long time ago. Um, in divorces uh, currently that involve infidelity, about two-thirds of them, the relationships were started or fostered online. And it starts with, you know, giving advice. Um, real dangerous thing to do would be start getting advice from the opposite sex about your marriage. I mean, that's just asking for it. Don't seek that kind of advice. It starts with getting affirmation from somebody that maybe your spouse doesn't give you. And, and that gets built. It doesn't start with, hey, I think I'm going to cheat on my spouse, right? It happens gradually. Um, protect your friendship. I love in Malachi 2.14, it says to the unfaithful husbands in Israel, It says, He he talks about the wife of their youth whom they've been faithless to, though she is your companion, and the wife by covenant. What's it saying there? Protect the friendship, you know? You guys are called to be best friends. Protect the friendship. That is the best way to protect your marriage from this. Don't let anyone from the opposite sex get closer to you than your husband or wife. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a cop, and we were talking about this, and we were talking about situations that have happened recently. And he said, you know what I do, I, sit, I affirm my wife all the time, and I, and I tell other people about how great she is, as a kind of creating a fence or a barrier around his marriage. Um, another safeguard that I would submit to you guys, this is not in the Bible, but I think it's a great safeguard, is the Billy Graham rule, I don't know if you guys know about this, Billy Graham's like super old now, right, we're like amazed, is he still alive? I mean, it's just like crazy how old this guy is, you look at him, you're like, you're still around, you know? But he is an amazing man because he has preached the gospel for all these years, never fell into scandal. But you know what he's done? He is uh, never alone with a woman that's not his wife or relative, ever. He's done that for decades to protect uh, um, himself, to protect his ministry, protect his his marriage. And I would just submit that to you guys. That's what I do. I'm a horse vet, and people are constantly wanting to do ride-alongs with me. Most of the people that want to do ride-alongs with me are women because most horse owners are women, most people that want to be vets uh, are women. And I don't do it. And it's caused a lot of like awkward exchanges where I go, well, I don't really do that. Well, why? Well, uh, you know, <laughs> over and over again, you know, I live this. Um, but I do not consider myself immune. I'm going to create that barrier. It, we're not going to be alone together. Um, you're not a, uh, immune. Protect your marriage. Second one I want to talk about, second fence would be around, would be to defend this good gift from pornography. Um, you say, what passage is there about pornography? Matthew five twenty seven applies to Pornography, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say that if anyone looks upon a woman with lustful intent, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. And guys, it has never been easier to look upon a woman with lustful intent or for a woman to look upon a man with lustful intent. Pornography is insanely common, right? With men and women, I think that's one thing that, you know, a lot of times we talk about pornography, we always talk about men. uh, With women too, Um, with men and women, with both images, with erotic literature, stories, things like that. And it's never been easier to hide, right? You used to have to go find it, go get it, have it arrive in the mail, right? But now it's so easy to get. The the statistics are all over the place. I was looking through stats on this. They're everywhere, but this one seems solid, that about a third of Americans regularly seek out pornography. A third of Americans. This is including, like, old people, too, I mean, this isn't just young people. A third of Americans, under 24 years of age, 67% of men seek out pornography regularly. Two thirds of men. You think like, oh my gosh, you know, like this is happening. A third of women, under 24, seeking out pornography regularly. Above 25, it's, it's 47% for men and 13 for women. Encouraging thing I found from Barna, they did a research just recently, and they found that practicing Christians, so those that go to church, are involved in their church, are three times less likely to use porn, which is like one of the first encouraging statistics I've heard. but it's far too common, too. And I was just thinking about, guys, our community, it looks so nice, especially here, right? All new houses, everything looks nice. What if on the garage doors of every house as you drove through the neighborhood, you would see projected the screens of what those people are looking at? On the garage doors, you're cruising through, oh, this is a nice neighborhood, and you're looking at all the stuff that's being viewed on everyone's screens. It'd be unbearable, wouldn't it? God sees that. You know? And I'm just thinking, guys, our community is super messed up. <laughs> I mean, this is an incredibly damaging thing. Um, Pornhub, which is a really common porn site, last year got 2.5 million visits per hour. You just know, you think about that. Um, and it starts young. Uh, most men that I've talked to about their porn habits started around 11 or 12. So you think about a 21-year-old guy that's had 10 years of marinating his brain in pornography. What does that do? You know, doesn't that make you like, deeply disturbed about our country? I mean, they're being trained about women and sex and, and, and relationships and all that through pornography on a daily basis. And I just say to you guys, I have young kids, my kids are starting to use the internet, if we're not regulating that in a really careful way, they are looking at pornography. And there's ways to do that, I mean, say they have an iPhone, you, um, you go in, the settings, parental controls, take away Safari, put on Covenant Eyes, which is an accountability software. They can use that as a browser. You don't have to totally cut them off from things, but you know, not able to download apps unless you look at them. We have to like think through it. If you're like, "Well, I'm just not techno. I don't know what to do," find somebody that is, and say, "Help me with the security on this." You know, companies are always paying people to come in and check out their internet security, right? You need to find a person to do that for you to help protect your kids. And I tell my kids, it's not because I don't trust you; it's because I don't trust everybody else. <laughs> you know, that's the problem. And you think about children and kids that are growing up that maybe have some same-sex attraction issues. This is fuel to the fire. We've had kids in our church that, um, not currently now, but when I did college ministry, that would come to me and talk to me about same-sex attraction. And it had been decades of looking at gay porn and stuff like that. That's fueling that. You know, so things to think about. The crazy thing is, though, guys, is that only half half of Americans think porn is wrong. And and this is the craziest thing. So if you do a study, and they did a study, 13 to 24, and they asked them to rank things on how bad they are. Porn, for 13 to 24-year-olds, porn was not as bad as not recycling. Okay? Not as bad. As, so think about that next time you, you know, have a bottle and you toss it in the trash in front of somebody that's under 24. Like, to them, that's like way up there. Capital crime. So not recycling and overeating are worse than pornography in their minds in general. It's insane, right? And what people fail to notice, our culture fails to notice is the immense destruction. Porn changes the way you think about people. Many studies have been shown to show that men that regularly view porn, think differently about women, are more tolerant to their abuse, Um, think of them lower than than men. Uh, Porn creates a market for um, sexual exploitation. Even quote unquote free porn is getting money from advertising, okay? And so they're still making money off you even though you're not paying anything. Porn ruins marriages. It's a super common complaint in divorces. Pornography is often listed. Decreases sexual desire among uh, married people. It increases your chance of infidelity hugely. It's addicting. It causes changes in the brain. There's a book I read a long time ago. This stuff's really common now, but this came out in 09, Wired for Intimacy, How Porn Hijacks the Male Brain. And it says the male brain, see, once again, you know, uh, probably, you know, it's maybe a third or half is likely that it's women, but it would be both. Um, and this is a neuroscientist, also Christian, that um, talks about the brain changes that happen, the chemical changes that happen. It's weird in a culture like ours where we won't touch certain foods if they're not organic or you know, if they have preservatives and stuff like that. And then pornography is doing seriously messing up people's brains. Um, pornography uh, creates a desire for more deviant forms of pornography. Because it has kind of this addiction, law of diminishing returns, there's always a need for something worse and deeper. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. We see that in pornography, right? Why is it that so much pornography is violent? Why is it that there's an increasing market for child pornography? One of the most common searches is youth pornography. That's what's happening. You need something worse. You need something deeper. You need something more deviant. But what's really cool, I've seen lately, is our culture is starting to realize that it's destructive. A couple years ago, GQ magazine of all places had an article, 10 reasons you should stop using porn. Many of them were very self-centered reasons, but, um, but it's interesting to see. You know, Time magazine had an article just recently on uh, the da- damage of pornography. In it, it said that porn users are saying that what they wanted from porn, which is pleasure and sexual fulfillment, they've almost completely lost. And so it's a thing that kind of, in the beginning, and this is the way sin always works, it says it'll give you something, and then you get hooked on it, it gives you none of that, except it gives you guilt and addiction. Um, And we gotta consider, too, and the reason why we had Holly um, share by video today is that porn is also closely linked to other types of sexual exploitation, such as um, prostitution and sex trafficking. Because, guys, as porn shapes the minds of a whole generation of people, which it does, there's an increased demand for sex trafficking. Some of the people that are involved in pornogra- pornography are actually trafficked people, okay? There's a lot of times I think that, you know, viewing porn, you're thinking to yourself, you know, these people are willing parties, they're making money having sex, great for them. No. There's tons of misery there. There's rampant drug use to spare. Many of the people that are involved in the industry of pornography were sexually abused as kids, and this is kind of the next place they ended up. So when we view porn, even free porn, we're actually creating a market for an industry that destroys lives. And one thing we gotta think about is these are people's sons and daughters. And I think as you have kids, you start to think about that. I have a daughter, she's seven. Like, I didn't even wanna think about that for more than five seconds. All these people are somebody's sons and daughters. There are dads and grandparents and mothers and siblings that are crying their eyes out knowing that they're doing this. Now guys, I realize that just preaching a convicting message on pornography does not, in most cases, make somebody that's been addicted to it for 15 years stop, okay? I realize that. I don't think it's like, oh, you really hammered that on the head, and you walk away, you know, triumphant, right? But it's a start. We need to talk about it. I was talking to my wife about this. She's like, I don't hear messages on this. Why is that? And I said, I don't know. We need to do it. We're going to do it more often. It's a beginning. And I, and you guys, you guys are familiar with the idea of air war and ground war? So in the church, there's two types of ministry. There's air war, which is what we're doing right now, preaching you know to get the, the most amount of information the most amount of exposure to biblical truth worships part of an air war type thing social media is an air war thing and then there's ground war right eventually you have to send in the troops to like look through the houses and stuff like that that's personal ministry okay and i know that that is a huge part of if you're stuck in it that's what you need the next step is that you would reach out to somebody and get help and i love how much this happens in our church guys This is not uncommon, that people will share these things. Um, I was reading this book, which is also an amazing book. You can see mine's like a super worn copy. I've been through this with a bunch of people. But this is called Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, nice title, by Ed Welsh, who's awesome. And this is mainly about substance abuse and stuff, but this is one of the best books on sin I've ever read. And it's great on this issue of pornography. And I love in here, I was reading through it with a guy, and it was talking about, you know, when somebody confesses their sin and says, you know, I've been struggling with pornography for a long time. It's hurting my family. I know that it's against God. I need help. And this is what he wrote. Let's just say that that is rare at best. If it does happen, you are witnessing a very dramatic work of God's Spirit. And I just thought, how cool that that's not rare here. You know, It is not rare for somebody, not just to get busted, but somebody to actually come and share the thing that they're dealing with. And you know why it happens? It happens because you guys have all created a culture of grace where people can confess their sins without fear. It's happened because this is a community where we've made very clear that there's true freedom in Christ. Because that's what you need. If you're going to confess your sin, you need to know that, that it's covered by Jesus' blood. And you need to know that there's some way it can change. Because no one's gonna come forward and say, hey, this is what I'm dealing with. If they have no hope, it's gonna change. Why have people know about it, right? You wanna have people know about it because you want them to help you. And guys, this is a church that's filled with people that would be very willing to help you in whatever you've gotten tangled up in. And this is a culture full of traps. So if you got tangled up in something, we're not gonna be like, how did that happen? <laughs> well, I know exactly how that happened. You were trapped, you know? It's your own sin, you're accountable for it, but there was a trap laid for you, Okay. And so we want to help you with that. And I also want to tell you guys, and I think this is super important to say, and I hope you take this right, not everybody's using porn, okay? I think sometimes when we see the statistics about people in the church, we start to think that, oh, just they're all using porn. They're not all using porn. I'm not using porn. I never use porn, just so you know. Um, There are people in this church, and I don't know why that is, and I'm not bragging or anything like that. I have no idea why I've been spared from it, um, because so many of my close friends uh, weren't. But there are many men and women here who were users of pornography and are completely free today. We had a men's meeting a couple weeks ago, and there were guys sharing, like, yes, I was totally enslaved to that. I'm not enslaved to it anymore. Isn't that cool? God changes lives. Even with, you know, brains that have been messed up. You know what's cool about this? Sanctification will change your brain. You know? Sanctification will transform and rewire your brain. God does that. Romans 6.14 says, sin will have no dominion over you, right? That's a promise, not a command. Real freedom's available. And I'm not just talking sin management where, you know, I used to do it every day and now I'm doing it once a month. We're not talking about that. We're talking about that will be one step on the way probably, but there will be a place where you're done, where you're free. You're walking in freedom. And it's going to be a combination of two things, be a combination of cutting off access and combination of heart change. Okay, so it's not just like cut off access. The heart needs to change too. But you do have to cut off access, okay? Let's say you're an alcoholic and, um, and you're trying to get rid of alcoholism and you keep a fifth of vodka under your sofa. How's that gonna work? Okay, because people balk at this like, well, you know, I don't wanna use software because that doesn't really deal with the heart issue. Use the alcohol example with them. They'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, that won't work. <laughs> right, you cut off access. There's software to do that. Those of you guys that are software developers, there's a huge market in this. I think. Because Covenant Eyes charges for it. They're worth paying for. But you could totally get into this market. And I think this market's going to grow of software that protects you, smartphones and stuff like that. Um, If you can do it better, you could do great on this. You could be helping a lot of people and build a business. Um, It's also going to include heart change, though. Um, Usually people use pornography because they're trying to deal with fear, loneliness, boredom, anger, disappointment. They're not like, hey, I need to victimize some women. No, they're not, that's not what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'm fearful, I'm bored, I'm lonely, I'm angry, I'm disappointed. I don't know what to do. And so part of this will be changing that internal wiring that you replace pornography with biblical ways of finding comfort and peace. And it's a process. It's learning how to live more and more out of the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's available. And there are brothers and sisters in this church that will do that with you. They would walk with you until you are walking in freedom. Guys, as a church, we are called to be a community of redeemed sexuality, like an island of redeemed sexuality in a sea of, of all kinds of other things. God is calling us not just to be cons- non-consumers. So Yeah, you be a consumer porn and move to a non-consumer, that's good, but that's not all God's calling us to be, wonderfully. He's calling us to actually be a part of ending it, of ending sexual exploitation, not just being a non-consumer. So it's so cool. People start off as a consumer. Someone helps them walk in freedom. They help other people walk in freedom. And then we have this opportunity like we have with Holly and Alicia to be a part on a more global scale of fighting this Um, and being a part of giving to... What she does there is she she rescues these girls from, from sex trafficking, and she brings them into her house and disciples them. Most of them come to the Lord. It's not a requirement to come to the Lord to be there, but most of them do come to the Lord. We were talking to her like, how many don't come to the Lord? And she's like... Oh, there was that one girl. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, like Never heard of a ministry like this, you know? Um, but guys, Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Isn't that cool? God's calling us not to just be non-consumers, but to be combatants. So you go from consumer, non-consumer, combatant. And if somebody wants out of slavery to sexual sin, we want this to be the best community for them. And then we want to enlist them to actually destroy that system of oppression. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that better than just like, I don't use it anymore? Not only do I not use it anymore, I help other people get out of it. I'm supporting a ministry to to bring down sexual exploitation. I love this passage. You guys know I love this passage. Matthew 12, 29, Jesus said this. He's talking about Satan, and he says, how can someone enter a strong man's house? He's talking about Satan. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? then indeed he may plunder his house. Guys, God through Jesus has defeated Satan and our role as the church is now to liberate people through the gospel. People that have been held in Satan's house and we steal them. Isn't that awesome? That should be our mission statement. You know, together through the gospel and the spirit we are stealing people from Satan. You know, it'd be kind of a little heavy on a business card. You will be like, I don't know about that church. That's intense. But consumer to non-consumer to combat. lastly, a fence, last fence that I want to talk to you about is a fence put around the protection of sex is a fence to guard against premarital sex. Now, this fence has the least buy-in in our culture. And I went that way in order. Start with one most people can agree with. Start with the next one. I think you have a lot of buy-in there. It's the one that has the least buy-in. Even among Christians, there's a lower buy-in on this. 90% of people will have sex before they're married. That's not new, though. A lot of times we think, oh, these days... Now, I was reading this book about Shakespeare, and it was saying in the 1600s, in Shakespeare's day, 40% of brides were already pregnant, okay? That was in the 1600s. It's not like, oh, these days in my day. Well, your day was all debauched too, okay? It was just really hidden. <laughs> Younger Christians often try to make a case, though, that God hasn't even put a fence here. Maybe you guys have heard it before. Well, the Bible does say that you can't have, you know, do adultery, but it doesn't say anything about premarital sex. The thing they're missing is the word porneia, The word porneia in the New Testament, the word that's often translated fornication or sexual immorality, is not the same thing as adultery, okay? It's a different term. It's a catch-all term. It's a term that actually includes all sexual gratification outside of a marriage covenant between a man and a woman, okay? Um, And we know that because in Bible passages in the New Testament, they'll be next to each other in the list, okay? They can't be the same thing. They're different things. And it's pornea is where you would fit in premarital sex. So pornea is a general term for all sexual gratification outside a covenant of marriage. And, um, and it's interesting, you know, we are reactive people as Christians. We see all this premarital sex. We're like, we got to do something. So then the latest thing we've done last maybe 10, 15 years is courtship, okay, which is great. Bless your heart, Okay. It's, it's great. I think something needs to be done, okay? Something needs to be done, and I hope that isn't offensive. Saying bless your heart is definitely offensive. Sorry about that. <laughs> bless your heart. Um, but what's happened is, is it's confusing because we haven't all adopted the same system. So there's some families who are doing really hardcore courtship. Some are, doing, they have a parlor and stuff, you know? And then there's other people that have another system, and then there's people that are just like, hey, we're just dating. And so this leaves guys in a very difficult position, you know, kind of like a girl, say, can I go out with you? And then it's like, he did what? Alone? He has to go out with you alone? Predator, right? And so here's like a well-intended guy. He had no idea. So I would just say this to you guys. If you're kind of pursuing a girl in the church, has a Christian family and stuff, just say, hey, i kind of like to go out with you. I'm not asking you out right now. What's the custom in your land? Okay? <laughs> and that will keep you from getting in trouble. And then girls, please share the custom in your land. He does not know. There are like so many different rules, it's, in, it's insane. But guys, in dating, I mean the most important thing in dating would be that there aren't any implied promises about the future, that's the thing that really hurts people when they break up, implied promises about the future you don't keep, and sexual sin. Those two things don't happen, you date for a while, things don't work out, You know, I don't know if you delete all your pictures of her on Instagram or whatever, but you move on, okay? Those are the most important things. I just say a few things in that area. Um, get accountability. You know, there's no reason get accountability. Have somebody in the church that keeps you accountable about your relationship. Also, there is a simple rule to avoid sexual immorality in dating, and that is don't be alone together in a non-public place. Once again, I do not have a verse about this, okay? So don't call me a legalist. I'm just saying it up front. But I'm saying this. If you are dating for multiple years and you are spending time alone in a non-public place, so spend time alone in a public place, no problem, in a non-public place, sexual immorality is very likely. If you date, even for multiple years, and you're never alone together in a non-public place, sexual immorality is impossible. Okay, I think. Now, I have been to the mall, <laughs> I have been to the mall, and I've seen young guys that I wanna like punch them in the face, cause like 15 year old kid, and you're like, what are you doing with her? I'm gonna punch you for her dad. You know, like, are you her dad? Nope, <laughs> just doing my duty, <laughs> you know? But do that, guys, that has a 100% success rate. How cool is that, okay? Also, don't date longer than you have to. I mean, don't start dating unless you're reasonably close to marriage. Three times in the Song of Solomon, it says, do not stir up love before it is time, right? Three times it says that. It's a pretty hot and heavy book, right? It's saying, hey, don't get involved in stuff until it's time. Multiple year dating relationships are very hard to keep pure. First Corinthians 7, 9 says, "Um, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That's a verse every young Christian guy knows. It is, there you go. See, can I get an amen? Um, arrange dating to be as brief as possible. And also, make your dating relationship about serving Christ together. Right? I mean, do things together. You could, for example, serve in children's ministry together. You, right? There we go. You serve in children's <laughs> ministry together or something like that. Um, let me round it out with this. You might still be wondering, especially if you're not a church person, you might be wondering right now, why would God prohibit sex between two people just because they aren't married, okay? Why shouldn't two people that really love each other engage in sex? And the reason is, the reason is it has to do with what marriage and sex are about, okay? So what is marriage? Marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. In marriage, we say, I belong to you permanently, exclusively, and completely, I will never leave you or forsake you. I have seen all your flaws, and no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. That's what the marriage covenant says, right? Um, And when we engage in a marriage covenant, we make ourselves vulnerable to the other person legally, financially, personally, emotionally, socially, in every way. We give up something. We make ourselves vulnerable. Sex in marriage is actually a kind of, Tim Keller says, it's kind of a covenant renewal ceremony, Right? that that sex in marriage is a physical union to celebrate a covenantal union. It's two people um, becoming one as a symbol of the oneness they already have by covenant. It's it's becoming uncovered and vulnerable to one that you've already made yourself vulnerable in every way. You already made yourself vulnerable legally and financially and socially and personally. And so this is something to display that to each other. But guys, we live in a time of radical individualism and, and people really want, in a partner, They want, in our culture, want a person that's going to make no demands on them, right? And that's going to require no sacrifice on any of their desires, interests, or dreams. Would you say that's right? What are you looking for? I'm looking for somebody that will not try to change me and will make no demands and make me have no sacrifices of my desires, interests, and especially my dreams. Okay? We don't miss the dreams. Right? (laughs) That's certainly not marriage. Would you guys agree? Those of you who are married? That's not marriage. (laughs) Okay. And so what sex outside of marriage is, is it's not wanting to give up your freedom or take on the cost of the marriage covenant and just take the benefit of it instead. Sex outside of the covenant marriage says this, I'm too afraid or I don't want to lose my freedom or I care too little about you to make a lifelong covenant with you, but I do want you to share yourself with me as if I were willing, right? Sex outside of marriage says, I'm too afraid or I want my freedom too much Or I care too little about you to commit to you in a lifelong covenant, but I still want you to share yourself with me as if I was willing. I want the benefits of the covenant, but I want to keep my options open. But guys, sex in marriage is a reminder of the covenant that you've already made. Sex in marriage says the same thing that marriage says, right? It says, I belong to you permanently, exclusively, completely. I will never leave you or forsake you. I've seen all your flaws, and no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. In sex, in marriage, we make ourselves physically vulnerable as a symbol that we've made ourselves vulnerable in every other way in our lives. It's a physical union to celebrate a covenantal union. It's a covenant in which you can be fully known and fully accepted. Isn't that awesome? Biblical view of, of sex in marriage is incredible. And that's why God guards it so ferociously. Have you ever wondered? That's why he guards it so ferociously. I love this. G.K. Chesterton also said this. He goes, the more I consider Christianity... The more I found that while it had established rules and order, the chief aim of those rules was to give room for good things to run wild. Isn't that cool? What are God's commands for? They're not to restrict us, they're to cause good things to run wild. I love that, certainly in the area of sex. God's commands in this area are good. He's protecting our joy, He's giving room for good things to run wild. When sex is enjoyed, The the way God intended. It's so cool. Sex is powerful. I mean, God knows that. When when sex is enjoyed in the way God intended, single people are drawn into permanent covenant unions. I mean, with all of our selfishness and stuff, something had to do that. And several things do, not just sex, but sex is one of those things. It draws single people into lifelong covenant unions. As it's engaged in, it makes marriages stronger and more enjoyable. And as that happens, children never have to worry that their family will be torn apart. You guys realize that? Sex and marriage is intended to make it so kids don't ever have to worry that their family will be torn apart. And I know people say that's, un, uh, that's unrealistic. What <laughs> you put forward to them, don't listen to that, unrealistic, we have this culture that's so secular and so sexual, it, you know why they say that? Because they have not experienced what we've experienced. We've experienced a God who is willing to pay all the costs of a permanent covenant with us. Because God doesn't seek intimacy with us without committing himself and paying the covenant costs. You know, like a single person that won't do that, God will do that. He saw all the costs, he saw they were high. The cost of covenant union with us was the cost of all of our sexual sin, our selfishness, our self-righteousness, our judgmentalism, our anger, our malicious speech, our greed. And then you have Jesus, the great husband of the covenant who says, I will pay for all that to make a covenant with them. I will pay the cost of covenant, and he did that on the cross. He paid all the costs of our sin, and he'll do that for you. If this morning you come in here and you don't know him, but you would like to enter into this covenant with him, he will pay all the costs of that covenant. He has paid them on the cross, he will apply them to you. He can be fully forgiven, and what's really cool about this, guys, is that Jesus makes us clean. Ever think about that? Part of the gospel is Jesus makes us clean, because sexual sin especially brings with it a sense of being dirty and damaged, and defiled, doesn't it? Take a look at 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, we'll end here. It says, and the first part of it is is a command, or it's a warning, actually. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And what's the next part? And such were some of you. Is that the coolest part of that? Is that one of the coolest like, little sentences of the Bible? And such, past tense, were some of you. Don't you love that? Because people could look at that list and go, well, that's me, I have no hope. Such were some of you. I Love it, such were some of you. And then what does it say? But you were washed, right? Jesus makes us clean. You were sanctified, meaning you were set apart. You're set apart to be his in the covenant. You were justified, meaning that you've been declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Jesus has lived, died, and been raised to give you a perfect new sexual past. You ever think about that? Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are. Was he tempted with greed? Was he tempted to lie? Was he? he tempted to be selfish? Was he tempted sexually? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Okay, so it says always as we are, right? If you're tempted that way, he was tempted that way. He was tempted in every way, and the amazing thing is, is that mentally and physically, he came out perfectly spotless. Lived 30-something years. There was one young guy in our college ministry when I said that he was tempted in every way, including sexually, and was without sin. He goes, that's a good reason to worship him right there. (laughs) Like, he's like, I'm sold. But the cool thing is that that perfect record gets to be our record. Do you guys realize that? Um, some of you come in here with a past, a sexual past. The beauty of the gospel is, is that you get to trade pasts. There's this beautiful exchange where his perfect past becomes yours, and your flawed past, your sinful past, became his, and he paid for it on the cross. And so if you know, we were to check in the database in heaven, and we were to look up your past, what comes up? Jesus' past. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? That thing you carry around if you're a Christian, you still like think about and you feel guilty about um, sexual sin in the past. You know what God would say to you? I can't remember what you're trying to forget. He'd be like, I, we have no record of it, sorry. You know, like don't be sorry, <laughs> I'm glad. Jesus perfect record. He's paid all the covenant costs. And so sex and marriage, guys, is a reminder to us that God himself made a never-ending covenant with us that with him, in a relationship with him, we can be naked and unashamed. That he can fully know us and yet fully love us. It's where God himself says to us, I I belong to you. God himself says to you, I belong to you permanently and completely. I will never leave you or forsake you. I've seen all your flaws and no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. Let's pray. Father, we uh, we are in awe of what you have done for us. We don't have to somehow you know work off our sin or you know, maybe have 10 good years to work off 30 bad years, but that our record is expunged and in its place is Jesus' perfect record. And I pray, Lord, that nobody would leave this place without having that hope. Not hoping in themselves to do better, but hoping in you to give them a fresh record, brand new, today. We pray that they would do that. We pray, too, Lord, that your people would leave here not burdened by the sin that they've done in the past. And Lord, as we take communion, as we think about those things, Lord, that there would be a real leaving it at the altar, Lord. You have already removed it. It it glorifies you nothing for us to dwell on our sin. So we pray nobody would leave here that knows you would leave here with guilt. And we pray that you give them an overwhelming sense that they can change. Lord, help us to be that community of redeemed sexuality no longer customers of this kind of exploitation, but combatants. Lord, I just thank you that you would even give us um, this ministry together. Sinners, blown it in all kinds of ways. And yet you call us to be yours. We thank you, Lord. Help us to worship you now, right? In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at cufgraceorg slash Menifee.